0: This is the Classical Ideas Podcast. Welcome to episode 21 of the Classical Ideas Podcast. This is Greg Soden. Today's topic is Unitarian Universalism, a Progressive American Religion. According to the very thorough official website UUA.org, quote, Unitarian Universalism is a liberal religious tradition that was formed from the consolidation of two religions, Unitarianism and Universalism. In America, the Universalist Church of America was founded in 1793 and the American Unitarian Association in 1825. After consolidating in 1961, these faiths became the new religion of Unitarian Universalism through the Unitarian Universalist Association, end quote, also known as UUA. Today's guest is the Reverend Molly House Gordon. Reverend... Molly hausch started her tenure as the third settled minister of the Congregation of the Unitarian Universalists of Columbia, Missouri, in August of 2012. She is a lifelong UU from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Molly holds a bachelor's degree in religion from Hendricks College in Conway, Arkansas, and a Master of Divinity from Harvard Divinity School in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Molly and her family live in Columbia, And Molly says it is truly a joy to serve the UU Church of Columbia, a warm and welcoming community that is always seeking to grow in spirit and in service. Together we ask the big questions of life and meaning and together we learn how to better love this world. I hope you will join us. So if you enjoy my discussion with Molly today, you can check out her incredible collection of sermons dating from 2012 to the present. You can download and subscribe to her Sermon Collection podcast for Android, email, RSS, and more from the archival site. The Sermon Archive link is uuchurch.net slash sermon hyphen archive. This was an incredibly rewarding and refreshing conversation for me. Reverend Molly and I had never met before I showed up in her office to record a conversation, so this chat was recorded within five minutes of the two of us meeting for the very first time. We had a lot of fun, and I'm grateful to Reverend Molly Hausch-Gordon for coming on the Classical Ideas podcast. And without further ado, here is Molly Hausch-Gordon. Welcome to episode twenty-one of the Classical Ideas podcast. I am here today with Reverend Molly Hausch Gordon from the Unitarian Universalist Church in Columbia, Missouri. So, thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, can you go ahead and introduce yourself and talk a little bit about how you came to be a Unitarian Universalist reverend?
1: Absolutely. So, um, I, as you said, I'm Molly Gordon, and I grew up a Unitarian Universalist in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and um, Tulsa is actually one of our largest UU churches in the country and um, provides a really strong liberal religious presence in a very religiously conservative area, Um, and my parents started taking me there because they were kind of in that spiritual but not religious category, but They realized quickly that in growing up in Tulsa, I was going to learn a lot of things about religion just from the air that I breathe and the culture around me. Um, And that if they wanted me to grow up religiously in the way that fit their values, as more progressive, as um, more kind of pluralistic, then they were going to have to find some place to take me where I would really get, get those teachings. And so they found the Unitarian Universalist Church. I started going there when I was four years old, I grew up singing in the youth choir and loving the worship life of the church and, um, just really, especially through my high school years, fell in love with the history of Unitarian Universalism and started feeling a calling to, um, do the work of ministry as my life's, uh, work. And, um, I was kind of always a kid who liked to ask big questions and so it just felt like the coolest thing I could possibly spend my professional life doing when it came time to think about that. And um, yeah, I decided um, as a senior in high school that I was gonna eventually go to Harvard Divinity School, which is where some of the history of my denomination lives and that I was gonna become a UU minister and I just kind of set down that path and went step by step and did it.
0: What was it like doing a Master of Divinity at Harvard? I'm just really curious about that, just for my own personal curiosity.
1: Yeah, Harvard is, um, you know, has a certain reputation in the country and in the world. But um, Harvard Divinity School is kind of its own place and its own part of the university. Um, It's a very pluralistic divinity school. Um, So it is home to the Religious Pluralism Project.
0: I've heard of it. Yeah, I followed them on Twitter, I think.
1: mm Mm-hmm. And, um, and their student body really reflects that. They get people in doing Masters of Divinity coursework um, from across the religious spectrum, um, Protestant, Catholic, although um, the degree doesn't count for the Catholic requirements for um, priesthood or ordination, um, Buddhist students, Jewish students, Muslim students, Unitarian Universalist students. Um, and so it's just an incredible place to really encounter a, a large plurality of experience and practice and really kind of go deep with that. But then it's also a place that really has a lot of the history of my particular tradition. And so I felt kind of steeped in that um, heritage mm-hmm. being up there as well. It was a great experience and made lifelong friends from a lot of different traditions
0: So I think listeners will be curious to know like exactly what Unitarian Universalism is in general, especially with relation to its history coming out of Christianity. Um, So like, can you go over some like the basic beliefs, like anything involving deity or scripture or whatever else springs to mind?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, the whole thing about Unitarian Universalism is that um, it's, like the whole answer to any of those questions is usually it's complicated Absolutely. Uh, because we are a tradition kind of based in a pluralistic self-identity. Um, and it's, the answer is kind of different depending on our origins and our history and how we self-identify now, because we have evolved a really kind of extreme amount over the last 200 years or, or a little bit less. And um, so We began, um, Unitarian and Universalism were two different denominations. They were denominations of Protestant Christianity, um, really developed in the United States in the 1800s, although both of the kind of core theological positions of Unitarianism and Universalism have existed since the origins of Christianity. And so the kind of basic position of Unitarianism is the oneness of God and the humanity of Jesus as a prophet and teacher, but not as a part of a trinity. Um, Also some beliefs in Unitarianism about um, human nature and the potential goodness of human nature. And so those beliefs have actually been present since the beginning of the Christian tradition, but were... Um, Kind of the losers when the church fathers sat down at the Council of Nicaea to decide what the doctrine was going to be. And then universalism kind of originate that the kind of originating belief was the belief in universal salvation or that a loving God would not consign anybody to eternal suffering and eternal damnation. And that's also a belief that's been around in Christianity since its very beginning, um, but didn't become church doctrine. And so there's some history of both of those beliefs throughout the Christian Reformation um, or, you know, across Europe, those kind of identities. But Unitarian Universalism is a very American tradition based on its trajectory in the United States. And so... um, How long do you want me to spend on this question? Well,
0: kind of like, I'm just curious, like, what are the beliefs in, like, uh, God or um, holy books and things like that?
1: So, currently, today, um, the beliefs in God are across the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a large percentage of Unitarian Universalists who are atheist and agnostic. Um, I would say probably a, a majority in most of our congregations. Um, We have a significant number of people who have a kind of non-traditional understanding of God. Um, I'd say very few Unitarian Universalists, maybe none of them, believe in God as like a man with a beard who lives in the sky and um, makes decisions or plans about things that are happening on earth. Um, But beyond that, basically... There's a a wide variety. We have people in our congregations who practice pagan traditions, who believe in a whole variety of gods and goddesses. Um, We have people who are atheist or agnostic, people who are liberal Christian, um, and who believe in a God that is um, a force of love or a force of creativity um, or some other number of things. And um, those are all kind of accepted and um, practiced beliefs among us.
0: One of the things that really blew my mind when I walk in is like whenever I walk into a room full of books, I always gravitate right to the bookshelf and I always look and see what the spines are that I recognize. And the first thing that I notice is I can see books on your shelves from just about every religion. So is that kind of like a priority of yours to like be... Informed, like across the religious spectrum.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's essential for Unitarian Universalists to have some conversance in basically all of the world's religions. Now, that's not to say that I'm an expert at, by any stretch, um, but it actually is required for Unitarian Universalist ministers. Um, to have a rooting that's more than just one course that kind of goes a little bit deep in two different traditions, like in our seminary education. And so um, my big specialty or the thing I really focused on was the liberal theological tradition rooted in the liberal Christianity um, in my seminary education. But then in order to both fulfill my interests and the requirements of the education that you that you ministers are required to have. I took a fairly deep course load in Buddhism as well. Um, And, you know, there's, there's this idea um, in Unitarian Universalism that we take inspiration and find sources of wisdom um, in many different places. So it could be from different religious traditions. Um, It could be from the tradition of our heritage of Protestant Christianity. Um, it could be from traditions that people carry in their personal heritages because people come to us from many different faith traditions. We have people who grew up Buddhist in our congregation. We have people who grew up Jewish in our congregation, people who grew up many varieties of Christian, people who grew up none of the above. Um, we have one member who's um, who had a parent who was a Sufi Muslim. Awesome. And so we just have a lot, people carry personal heritages of a very plural um, identity into our congregations. And then we have our own heritage and, and then explore all of these um, traditions.
0: So what would you say is like the purpose or goal of Unitarian Universalism? Is there like a, like in so many religions, there's like an end goal, like salvation or nirvana. Is there an end goal for uh, Unitarian Universalism?
1: The way that I like to articulate our goal is to learn to love this world more fully. And that points to a few different pieces of our theological identity. And so one of them is that we are very this worldly. Um, We pretty uniformly believe that no matter what happens after death, our concern is how we live in this life. Um... And then it also contains a bit about always learning and growing. And so Unitarian Universalists believe that the truth is never complete, that revelation is continuous, that we are always learning. And honestly, we we believe that it's more powerful to always be asking more questions than to ever think we've gotten to an answer.
0: So just a kinda of little tangent on that, like what's the view on like you know, scientific research and things like that, like age of the universe? Is there any specific views on that kind of stuff?
1: Unitarian Universalists are all about science sure. as a, um, deeply informing our, um, knowledge of the world. Um, and so yeah, Unitarian Universalists have, you know, like with the church that I grew up in, one of its kind of claim to fames during a certain part of the nineties was like stringently fighting a creationism display that people were going to put up at the zoo Hmm. um, because the zoo was a living museum to, to scientific, um, understandings about animal life. And we were really clear that, um, a creationism display was not based in scientific understandings and did not have a place in a, in a, in a place like the zoo. <laughs> That's in so a, interesting. Um, so that kind of respect for scientific understanding. And really our history emerges out of um, kind of the Enlightenment tradition. Mm-hmm. That's really when Unitarianism uh, and Universalism both began was during kind of the um, the rise of empiricism in Britain and in Europe and those ideas coming over into the early United States and and um, and Unitarians and Universalists kind of applying rationality and reason to, um, at that time, to the Bible and to matters of faith and um, having that really inform their um, faith.
0: That's fantastic. So what do you think Unitarian Universalism does particularly well as a world religion? Like, what are some of your favorite things about it?
1: I think... Probably a somewhat unique feature of Unitarian Universalism is our belief that um, difference is holy rather than threatening. And um, kind of this radical openness to difference of belief and even radical openness to difference of belief within our, um, our own congregations. But in concert with that, is this deep commitment to um, practicing love and justice in this world that means that um, our openness to difference of belief doesn't mean this kind of like anything goes mentality, Um, but it's kind of this idea that difference is holy and we have to live that value of the, the worth and dignity of each person um, in, in the ways that we work for having a clear stance, uh, on behalf of justice in this life. So I think those two things combined are are things that I really appreciate about our tradition.
0: So, um, let's, we can step out a little more broadly and start, think about some of the people that have influenced you, like maybe like spiritual role models or authors or thinkers in general, like who are some of your favorite, uh, people that have shaped your way of thinking about the world?
1: Yeah, so um, I grew up Unitarian Universalism, which meant that I grew up with this message that I could, like, uh, discern what I believed about God and the world and everything else. Mm -hmm. Um, And not that that meant anything goes, but it meant that it was mine to undertake this, like... um, deep kind of search and discernment and conscious search, conscience searching. But it also meant that the adults in my life weren't actually giving me answers <laughs> when That's I was asking questions mm-hmm. about existential things. They were giving me, um, you know, more questions <laughs> and I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> and They're very Socratic and like, them. as a kid, I really wanted some answers. Like, like I'm going to die and eternity is a thing. And like, what do I do about all of that? And so I was really, um, looking for kind of a system or a theology. And um, when I was an undergraduate, I studied with um, our, one of our religion professors at my college, who um, was a process theologian. His name is Jay McDaniel. His name is Jay McDaniel. He's still there. He's uh, still doing great work. And um, he introduced me to the work of Alfred North Whitehead and Charles Hartshorn, who are kind of originators of process thought, um, which is this way of looking at the world that is systematic but deeply, deeply resonant with my intuitions about the way things are. Um, And and, um, just felt to me like suddenly I had found this um, theological system that I wanted to build upon, um, that I wanted to hang all the little bits of wisdom that I was finding in other places, and so um, they're kind of my my uh, theological heroes, I guess. I'm not sure if I would call them like my my spiritual teachers, but so, uh, so much as my theological heroes, and and I love the theological traditions, and um, and so they have this um, worldview about. Um, reality as deeply um, open the idea that everything is unfolding and in process and never ever static and um, then the kind of related idea to that that if everything is all unfolding everywhere it's all unfolding in deep influence with one another and deeply interconnected and um, interestingly enough um both of them were writing in like the early twentieth century. Um and maybe like even into the the later nineteenth century for Whitehead. And yet um a lot of what scientists are now discovering about quantum physics actually reinforces and um validates the worldview of these process thinkers. Um in a way that at their time was really um, counter to everything that all of like philosophy and science was based on, this idea of like static matter as this thing Mm -hmm. that is and doesn't move. And even our language is built around like, When you learn process thought, you have to learn all these like weird words because in process thought, everything's a a verb and nouns don't really work anymore. Hmm. And you can't like there's no language for that because our language is built on like this thing happens to this thing rather than it's all becoming and
0: unfolding. Well, and even language constantly unfolds from year to year. Yeah, exactly. And and we grow and it's just this ever expanding body of words that helps us make sense of the things around us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And philosophers, you know, later philosophers have come to lots of things to say about that. Um, And I just am always amazed by kind of these process theologians really um, getting at some of these views of the world that have have become far more supported by by the evolution of science and language and Kind of a lot of different forms of thinking.
0: I didn't come here expecting to have homework, but now I'm like, I have all these little buttons firing in my mind right now about all the things I need to dive into after this conversation. I'm going to go down a little a couple of rabbit holes based on that. Yeah, so, absolutely. Thank you. That's Check be them out.
1: Easy. I have a particular HeartSorne recommendation. Oh, give it. Um, yeah. What is it? <laughs> oh, gosh. I don't remember the title. I know exactly where it is on my shelf. Um, It's called The Divine Relativity.
0: Awesome. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. And that's for the listeners too. Yeah, Just, absolutely. You know, put some titles out there. It's yeah. awesome.
1: And so part of w- where process thought about the universe and how it works applies to theology is then if everything in the universe is unfolding, so too is God oh, wonderful. always unfolding and changing. And actually, if everything in the universe is interconnected, so too is God. And God is is affected by the world and not this like unmoved mover in the sky. And so that's kind of what the divine relativity is about.
0: That's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, so, like, Unitarian Universalism might be something that's really new to listeners in general, but um, have you ever run across any, like, common misconceptions about UU that you'd like to clarify for any listeners?
1: I think the most common misperception, just because people don't, like, haven't heard of us, mm-hmm. is that we're just, like, this new invented thing Um And I always the thing I most want to communicate to people who are just learning about Unitarian Universalism is that we actually have a really long history, especially in the United States, um, and that it's a history that's like really contemporary with the history of our country. Um, A lot of our congregations in the New England area um, kind of emerged out of those original Churches that were founded by the pilgrims who came to New England to colonize New England, which is, of course, a complicated history, but that um, our history goes back to those. I mean, they're our direct ancestors when it comes to um, kind of like a theological heritage. Um, those Puritans who came to New England um, for religious liberty at um, the very, very early colonizing of this country um were what some of whom would eventually evolve into becoming Unitarians and then now on down the road Unitarian Universalists and that's actually a history that you see in in life when you go up to the Boston area the first parish in a lot of towns the first parish was how you founded a town at that time it was before the separation of church and state Mm -hmm. you wanted to found a town you started a church and, and a lot of the towns around the Boston area, the first parish is now a Unitarian Universalist congregation. Hmm. And so there's just this deep history that I think, especially in this part of the country, people are surprised to hear that about us because we're so odd and we've evolved so far from that history Yeah, um, in a short period of time. We're, we're generally not... Um, the majority of our congregants don't consider them, themselves Christian and yet our... Um, our ancestors are some of the, you know, original Protestants in the United States.
0: And I'd imagine that you do have some congregants who do consider themselves Christian, Absolutely,
1: we do. Mm -hmm.
0: Excellent. So I have sort of a micro question, then I'm going to back it out to a macro question. So if you think about an individual person who walks in the door, like a new potential congregant, um, what kind of individual problems does uh, Unitarian Universalism seek to solve for, like, people in our society? It's so like if you think of like an individual person. Like, what does Unitarian Universalism do for like an individual person?
1: I think people who come here usually come because they're looking for something that is more open than the than what they're le- So often, people come here leaving another tradition. Mm-hmm. Looking for something that is more open than kind of a more closed system than that, as they perceive it, sure. they were coming from. Um, and then we also have people coming from a spiritual but not religious place who have not come from any tradition, who are looking for some place to engage more deeply with life. And um, it's hard to do that on your own because Mm -hmm. life is busy and we don't create accountability or space for ourselves. It kind of we need to help create it for each other. And so I think we provide something for both of those kinds of people and for many other kinds of people, too, um, that we provide a place to engage incredibly deeply with the pressing existential questions of life Mm -hmm. and then we provide a place to um, to be accountable to whatever answers we're finding and what that means for how we live our life and so um, for me it's really about spirit we we provide a place um, to engage deeply with spiritual growth in a way that's accountable and inspiring and to then take that spiritual growth into its ramifications for what it means for how we live life, um, to be more loving towards other people, um, to be more active towards justice, to, um, be more, um, more fully human.
0: I love the fact that you keep saying the term, uh, S.B.N.R., spiritual but not religious, which I think that I read recently in Tricycle was is like the fastest growing religious demographic in the country. People that are seeking something, but they feel really confined in boxes when they go to certain places. So I think that that really captures the essence of what a lot of S.B.N.R.s are actually looking for. So then if you back it out to the world today, like I, I see some of the books on your shelf, like I could see the work of Naomi Klein staring me right in the face. What are some of the major problems in the world today facing humanity that you think um, that you can play a role in as an SB, uh, as a Unitarian Universalist reverend?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, one of the things that we've been really clear about, especially in recent years, is that um, supremacy systems are against our religion. And what I mean by supremacy systems... Are um, the systems that humanity creates that um, put rankings into humanness Mm -hmm. um, and that um, kind of lift up some at the deep expense and cost of others in ways that are um, intangible and in ways that are very material. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I like to say that um, part of my calling as a Unitarian Universalist minister is to work to dismantle the white supremacist, cis-heteropatriarchal capitalist system. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, like, that's kind of a big goal.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: But we believe that all of those systems are built upon the dehumanization of some um, in order to give some twisted power to others, Um, and that it actually, all of those systems impoverish all of us, even the people to whom they give a little bit more power because they, they put humanity at stake. And if you can be dehumanized in one situation, you can be dehumanized in any of them. And so that's kind of our major work in the world is, um, fighting all of the systems that otherize and dehumanize and criminalize other
0: people. So something I'm curious about is how you would answer this question. So say that you have a person that looks at, um, like, protest movements in the modern day, like they look at, um, like, the Ferguson protests or something like that, and they are, um, like, angry about it, and, like, they they like they otherize, and they're um, very judgmental of actions that are meant to tear down systems of oppression. So what do you say—what would you say to people who are, like— um, in denial that these systems are a real thing like what do you think about that
1: i guess that's kind of the question of our day you're asking me how to bring people who are in denial awake
0: yeah sort of <laughs> i mean if, if if you have any ideas like because that's something that i i uh I struggle with. Um, verbalizing for myself you know whenever i meet somebody who is um resistant to acknowledging that others are oppressed to the um and others benefit from that oppression um i just hear a lot of pushback on that now i hear a lot of people say things like um what am i supposed to uh like apologize for being white or and things like that and it just kind of like it's uh it ends the whole conversation so do you know what i'm talking about yeah
1: so I think, I mean, part of the end result of understanding supremacy systems is understanding that they hurt even those of us who are given privilege by them mm-hmm. because they they dehumanize all of us. Um, that's part of the end result. And we have to recognize that part of the way that they do that is by giving some of us more privilege, more humanity than others, Um, and I think the way in for people who are just in deep denial about that, I mean, it's a question we're all wrestling and anybody who's involved in movement work, I think is wrestling with that. And some people are really clear, like converting those people is not my job. I have some, I have a more important fight to fight. Um, but it probably is the job for those of us with more privilege, um, who are awake to those systems to, um, to try and help wake up other people to them. And one of the strategies that we've found is sometimes successful is kind of this um, uh, helping people find parallels in their own lives. Now, you don't want to go, it's hard to go too far down that road because you don't want somebody to be like, you're right, I am so oppressed when they're not. But sometimes it can be a way into empathy to think about um, a time or a place in their life where the system was stacked against them and then help them, you know, and then give some examples about the people that you care about who, um, who do have marginalized identities and the way that um, they experience that more, even more often and all the time. And isn't that awful? Um, And like one of our, um, Members came across a great example in um, in one of our um, anti-racism study groups that we were holding. She was talking about um, she is a cyclist. And so she was having conversations with somebody in the cycling community and um, cyclists often feel like really invisible to motorists. Um, like the world is built for motorists and not for cyclists. Yeah. I was
0: a road cyclist for 11 years. Yeah, And, uh, so I, I remember that and, being and that, and that the world, on the side of the road. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. And that the world is dangerous for you mm-hmm. as a cyclist and that you are made invisible and less important and that that puts your life in, at risk and in danger. And she was like, that's my way in for some of my cyclist friends to say, you have this experience as a cyclist. Now imagine, you know, uh, that experience being magnified just by like you can choose to be a cyclist right like you can always just get off right. the road and not ride your bike exactly but you can't choose not to have black skin right or you can't choose not to be you know um another marginalized identity um you know LGBT a woman etc um and so she's like you know imagine that being kind of, a more constant reality than just when you get on your bike right? and just finding an example that people can relate to and then helping, um, helping them kind of extend that empathetically. And now this isn't getting at some of the people who are even more entrenched in supremacy systems who like explicitly acknowledge them. Like Mm -hmm. that's a whole nother question about how we deal with kind of the, um, supremacist radicalization of, of people in our country. But for for the people of goodwill who are resistant to the idea of privilege, sometimes you can find an experience in their own life that then helps draw out some empathy um, for others.
0: So... Um, and I know that you're really you're really vocal, um and you're really engaged in the community and talking about all these things. And so I've learned a lot already from you just by like following some of the articles and things that you're posting. So um it takes a little bit of bravery as well to stand up and speak out about stuff like that. So I'm glad that this building is doing that.
1: yeah, it um, I think it takes even more bravery to like make it through the world with more marginalized identities than ours. And so we are just trying to do our small little part and, Mm -hmm. um, it sucks that that is somehow a courageous act, but Yeah. yeah.
0: So, um, if you think about the future, like, um, for the rest of your life, so what are some of your personal, um, goals for the rest of your life? Like in ministry, um, In regards to religion, philosophy, ideas, social justice, anything like
1: that—dismantling the white supremacist, (laughs) heteropatriarchal, capitalist system. Um, No, I, I, I. I mean, my big goal is to do what I say. We try and help others do, which is learn to love the world better and learn to dismantle all the things in me that keep me from um, truly active and justice making love for other people. That's a lifelong, that's lifelong work. That's spiritual work. And that's my biggest goal supporting others in doing that and growing and doing that. I, um, I love writing. So I probably have like, if you're talking like, you know, our 10 year plan or whatever, sure. I have a goal to do some writing that's theological. I also have a goal to do some writing that's creative. I like writing stories um, for kids I love I love applying process theology to to some theological writings. So I, I definitely have a goal about that. I don't know when I'll find the time and energy. Hopefully, a, a sabbatical and a time when a, a, a sabbatical would at, at a time when kids are in school or something yeah. like that. But um, but yeah, just continuing to find ways to serve. Um, continuing to find ways to be in community that is. Um, more multi-religious, multi-gender, multi-racial, you know, finding ways to really deeply live into community that, that breaks down the divisions of the society imposes. That, that's my goal um, long-term, and that's long-term work because it's really hard to do.
0: So I love the fact that you've mentioned so many times in this conversation that you make a point of studying many religions. So if you're talking to a listener, um, why do you think it's important to learn about all religions?
1: They all have so much beautiful wisdom. Um, I
0: completely agree. I'm yeah. just like, I'm just curious on your take on it. You
1: know, I, I also think so just to kind of push on that on all myself a little bit. Um, there's always this tension between breadth and depth, right? In everything in life. And the more time you spend learning about the breadth, you're probably sacrificing some depth with any given tradition. And sure. I think traditions have deep depths to them exactly because there's some wisdom about committing to one deep dive into growth. And so um, that's a tension I kind of wrestle with in a pluralistic tradition um, is am I, am I getting some breadth here at the expense of some depth? And so... Um, but I think you can also choose a place to go deep while remaining really open and, um, active in learning from and, and recognizing the beauty of other traditions. I think that's the ideal. When we hit it right as Unitarian Universalists, we choose a path to go deep in while continuing to engage the plurality around us and and being enriched by the beauty of that plurality
0: that's kind of something that I as a religious studies teacher so all year long I'm talking about 15 different religions with 60 18 year olds yeah. and so I'm touching on the Tao Te Ching but we don't talk about the I Ching we talk about the Bhagavad Gita but we don't read the rest of the Mahayana you know what I mean mm-hmm. so I'm touching on these like aspects of it yeah. so I have this metaphor that I love to talk to the class about I'm like imagine you're on a rowboat on a lake And you're paddling across the surface of the lake. In the distance, you see some beautiful mountains and some trees, some birds flying overhead. What are you missing? And eventually, the students will say, What's under the water? And I say, Exactly. You have to put on your own scuba gear and you have to dive out of your boat and see what's under the water for yourself. So, introducing all of these traditions on this podcast is like an invitation to listeners and to thinkers and learners and curious people in general to put on some scuba gear dive out of that rowboat and see what's underneath that water for themselves and do that that deep dive if they are so inclined when something touches that part of their their curiosity in their heart that makes them want to do that dive.
1: Yeah. I think that's awesome and I think we have the capacity for a number of deep dives in our lives and like you're not going to touch bottom even then. Nope. And even 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 those of us who choose one path as the work of a lifetime still don't touch bottom and mm-hmm. there's just this depth of mystery that we have to live with and that's kind of the awesome part to live with and um, spiritual growth by whatever path is the work of a lifetime
0: so what do you hope non you you folks take away from this conversation
1: Unitarian universalism is really cool and you should check it out
0: <laughs> with that uh, I just want to say Thank you so much, Molly, for coming on the Classical Ideas Podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you. This is really fun.
0: Excellent. The Classical Ideas Podcast is written and performed by me, Greg Soden. Original music is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. His music can be found at www.wearewarmmusic.com. Thanks for listening.